So in preparation, um, I'd like you all to stand and sort of shake a bit. We haven't really stood up, so stand up, uh, move around a little bit, and then uh, we're going to look at the passage. Jay, can you pull that, the Bible passage up for us? Um, okay, you can sit back down or stand if you need to, to stay awake for uh, this portion. Um, so what I'd like to do is uh, go through this passage and uh, talk a little bit about, about it. Um, this sign is actually, so it's the last of the signs in the Gospel of John. Um, and it is a little different than the other signs we've looked at. Um, the order is different. You may or may not pick up on that um, as we go through. But in virtually all the other signs, what happens first? What's the first thing that happens? Say, in the man born blind. What's the, what happens before there's any sort of discussion of the thing? Uh, well, there might be a question. There is in the man born blind, right? There's the question. But generally, there's an action, right? The sign actually happens first, and then there's kind of this discussion about it. What's weird about this sign as the last sign is that there's a lot of introduction before you actually get to the sign. The sign is almost one of the last things that's done in this uh, part of the gospel. So um, I'm going to sort of read through it and refresh our memories of how this story goes. Uh, a certain man, Lazarus, was ill. He was from Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. This was the Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Her brother Lazarus was ill. What do you notice is being repeated there? You're going to notice it again and again. Lazarus is ill. Ill. Lazarus is ill. Um, Mary is going to anoint Jesus after this in the Gospel of John. So the sisters sent word to Jesus saying, Lord, the one whom you love is ill. When he heard this, Jesus said, this illness isn't fatal. It's for the glory of God so that God's son can be glorified through it. Now, I don't know about you, but I start to get a little irritated right about here, and then it just kind of grows. Um, Jesus loved Martha, his sister, and Lazarus. When he heard that Lazarus was ill, what do you expect to have the next sentence be? He goes, right? You're like, he goes and he, no, he stayed where he was. Okay. After two days, he says to the disciples, let's return to Judea again. The disciples replied, Rabbi, the Jewish opposition wants to stone you, but you want to go back? So now what are we also picking up on that's going on? Not only is someone that Jesus loves seriously ill, but what else is in sort of the water? What else is happening? What's the tension? Danger, Danger right? Uh, Jesus is... Uh, going to go back, if he goes back to where Lazarus is, he's going to go back where people want to kill him. Uh, Jesus then gives this rather cryptic response, which we won't talk a lot about, but uh, aren't there 12 hours in the day? Whoever walks in the day doesn't stumble because they see the light of the world, but whoever walks in the night does stumble because the light isn't in them. And you think, so who put that in there? Like, did that... Um the, the quick, a quick way of thinking about this is that Jesus is sort of metaphorically talking about that there's a time sort of for everything, um, while also alluding, of course, to major themes throughout John's Gospel. So I'm going to kind of set that aside, but just note it's, you know, Jesus being sort of crypto-Jesus, right? Um, as in the Gospel of John, uh, he, meaning he's not necessarily being straightforward in everything that he's 
he's alluding to things, he's pointing to things, gesturing to things, but isn't necessarily speaking plainly, right? He continued, our friend Lazarus is sleeping, but I'm going in order to wake him up. And here I love the disciples, right? The disciples are like, Lord, if he's sleeping, he will get well or wake up, right? Uh, they thought Jesus meant that Lazarus was in a deep sleep, but Jesus had spoken about Lazarus's death. Okay, so then he says, okay, enough metaphor. <laughs> um, for you, Lazarus has died. For your sakes, I'm glad that there, I wasn't there so that you can believe. Let's go to him. Now again, I'm sort of getting irritated with Jesus at this point. I don't know about you, but it feels a bit like, well, it's sort of like Jesus is playing this scene, right? He's sort of plotting it out. He's being very um, conscious of, how, of what this tragedy is for. Um, then Thomas, the one called Didymus, says to the other disciples, let us go too that we may die with Jesus. Uh, the with Jesus is added there in the CEB, I think, to make clear that Thomas, right, as with many of the disciples, um, well, we'll leave that aside, but right, basically Thomas is, is also reminding us that this is a dangerous move Jesus is going to make. Um, and there may also be a sort of irony in this, right? Um, so keep going. Um, when Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Now, this is actually somewhat important in Judaism, because at the time, it was thought that the sort of soul had departed from someone after, any guess how many days? Three. So it's like, not only is he dead, but he's what? Really dead, like super dead, right? Like, there's no chance. Um, we want to make sure that it's clear that Lazarus is genuinely dead. Uh, it does make me think of Monty Python and various... <laughs> dead. <laughs> really dead. Or that's the Princess Bride, right? Um, many Jews had come to comfort... Oh, Bethany was a little less than two miles from Jerusalem. So what is John reminding us is now kind of kicking up. So not only is there danger because people want to harm Jesus, but now he's going somewhere that's close to Jerusalem. So part, John is playing this story on a lot of different levels. There's a very personal story here, right? This is, Lazarus is referred to again as who? As, what's his relationships that we know? As a as a brother, as someone who's beloved as a brother, and, and a friend, right? He's the beloved friend. So here you have Jesus going on one plane where it's highly familiar, but also there's this sort of political religious drama that's going on, a dangerous situation that's developing. And John wants to make sure that we're clear that Jesus is coming into uh, very close to Jerusalem and doing this. Many Jews had come to comfort Martha and Mary after their brother's death. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. Now, just as a note, you'll notice all the other signs, none of them have this much buildup, and we're like only halfway through the buildup, right? Um, which maybe there's a reason I think John wants to set up this particular sign as the final sign. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went to meet him. While Mary remained at the house, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Even now, I know that whatever you ask God, God will give you. Now, Martha here 
is pretty amazing, I have to say. What does she seem to convey to Jesus, even in this opening sort of line? What does she sort of ooze here? It, faith, well, she's more the faith one, right? Like, uh, on one hand, what does she say? If, if you'd been here, which might be a dig, right? Um, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. So maybe that anger, like, a little bit ticked off, right? But even though you've ticked me off, I believe that you can do something still. Jesus told her, your brother will rise again. Martha replied, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. What's she pointing out? Maybe that's not what I'm after. Right? I believe that. I believe in this last day thing. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live even though they die. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? Um, this was the text that was actually read as my father was being anointed uh, as he was dying. This was what the priest read. Uh, And so whenever I hear this, I think of that moment of being there with my father who was about to die within about a day or two. And of course, there's always that line, do you believe this? She replied, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, God's son, the one who is coming into the world. Now, this last line is kind of weird. It's a, it's a Greek, um, it's one of those times when Greek is kind of handy to know, uh, or I just have enough to be dangerous, as they say, right? This is what's called the middle voice in, in Greek. It's this kind of weird language that means that uh, Jesus is expressing, uh, I believe, she, she says, I believe you are the Christ, God's son, the one who is coming into the world. It's this present reality that's reflective on the actor. In other words, You are coming, but you are. And you are the one who's kind of making it happen, but it's it's also about you. And this is is important, potentially, because what she's saying is it's not just a future reality. Jesus and Martha are having this discussion about what does it matter that there's a kind of ultimate rising of the dead, which she says she believes in, And why does it matter now? Like, I believe that you are right now. When is Jesus the resurrection and the life? Later? Now, right? He says, I I am, I am this. I am the resurrection and the life. Not I will be, but I am. So part of the buildup of this story is that Part of what Jesus is reminding Martha is that whatever is going to happen, whatever will happen, whatever understanding we have of something like the resurrection, it has legs now. There's a way that that future matters now. Next one. Still building up. Oh, let's see. Uh... Right? Are we right here? 
Uh, after she said this, she went and spoke privately with her sister Mary. It's a long story, right? The teacher is here and he's calling for you. Mary hears this, she gets up, she goes uh, out to meet him, and other people think she's going to the tomb, so they follow, and so other people witness this interaction between Mary and Jesus. Now Mary has a little bit of a different thing. She falls at Jesus' feet and says, Lord, if you'd been here, my brother wouldn't have died. What is she reminding him, or how might she be saying this to him? If you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. What might be implied there? What was it? Blame? What else? Or what might we have said instead? Why didn't you come? You should have been here. If you had been here, this would not have happened. But she doesn't have anything that she follows it up with, right? She just leaves it like that. Um, and I have to say that I find that also uh, lovely that that's preserved for us, right? Jesus is fine with both Martha and Mary coming to him and saying, I am ticked off. Because it sure seems like if you've given a rip, this would not have happened. Maybe you can relate to Martha and Mary on that score. They are ticked off. They are hurt that seemingly Jesus didn't care enough to change their circumstances. When Jesus saw her crying and the Jews who had come with her crying also, he was deeply disturbed and troubled. He asked, where have you laid him? They replied, Lord, come and see, which is, by the way, uh, what, other what Jesus often says to other people. Come and see. Um, and Jesus, the shortest verse in the King James Bible, here it is. This is one of the weirdest texts. This text of John 11 has fascinated me, and here exactly is why. Because the build up to this moment is that Jesus sounds as triumphalistic and irritatingly in control and even semi-manipulative as if he's sort of using this situation. But then I hit this verse, and it is a puzzle. Why can Jesus speak the most overtly huge promise of anyone? Even death itself doesn't matter. I am the resurrection and the life, right? It's totally okay. I'm going to sit here for a couple more days. It's all good. And then all of a sudden, as is typical in the Gospel of John, you have Jesus at his sort of most, um, almost irritatingly confident in what God can do and will do. And then all of a sudden, right smack dab in the middle of it, you have Jesus being completely, utterly human and even vulnerable. Jesus looks at Mary. What does he see? What does he see? Hurt. Hurt. He looks at the Jews weeping with her. What does he see? 
sorrow. He sees devastation. He sees, like all of us often see, that death takes people we love. Death destroys relationships that seem like they should go on and do in some sense go on. And yet, there's this profound fracture. Jesus began to cry. This, I would suggest to us, is where we also are to live. If we are to become like Christ, Christ may be modeling for us how is it that we live in a world that is simultaneously one in which we believe God's present or God's future matters for the present, in which we are assured that God will triumph, that violence will not last, that there is a resurrection. And also, Jesus hands us in this story and in his very body a pause and says, this is also what it means to live as people who believe in that triumph. And it is to have enough hope that we can stop and weep. I would argue that one of the great gifts of John 11 is that God gives us permission and even commands us in his model of this moment to mourn. And that Christian hope is not wishing things were different. Christian hope is not mere triumphalism. It is not merely waving the flag and saying it's all gonna be fine. Some of us got really irritated at people who waved those things in front of us. I can't tell you how many times I've heard stories of people having Romans quoted to them, right? What's the great line in Romans? Romans 8? Oh, there is that, there is that one too, right? But that one's a little bit, that, that one at least acknowledges that there, are, there is all this crap, but it won't stop God from getting to us, right? But what's the one about... All things work together for good. Now, I personally have heard that, and some of you have heard that, thrown out regardless of your personal pain, regardless of social ills, and said, oh, God's going to work it all out. And sometimes it's done without this peace. That is the reason that Paul is so convinced that God works all things together for good, is that Paul also knows that there's a lot of bad stuff out there. Jesus says to us, I think, in this text, yes, God is big enough, great enough to overcome even death itself. That great mystery, that great thing that severs us from all hope sometimes, from love. But here he says, if you're going to have hope, take the time to mourn. It makes no logical sense, given his language, unless 
It may be that Jesus is saying to us to actually live as people of Christian hope is to live as people who mourn. Who mourn not without any hope at all, but who mourn against a confidence that God will indeed raise even the dead. The Jews said, see how he loved him, but some of them said he healed the eyes of the man born blind. Couldn't he have kept Lazarus from dying? Also a great text, right? Because some people are just like, see, he doesn't give a rip. He didn't care enough to keep us from this kind of sorrow. I relate to that. All right, keep going. Jesus is deeply disturbed again. This is kind of a groaning uh, thing. He comes to the tomb. It was a cave, a stone covered by the entrance. So uh, just a little side note. Some commentators argue that there are these pieces in this Lazarus story that are pointing to another tomb, to another death. Whose? Jesus' own death, right? Uh, And we're going to see that that's overtly connected in a moment. But even here, right, there's a tomb, there's a stone, right? There's these illusions that John is giving us to say this sign is going to be a sign that works on a lot of levels, right? Um, Remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said, "Uh, Lord, just a little, you know, biology here. He will stink. Uh, he's been dead four days. Didn't I tell you that if you believe, you will see God's glory? So here again, right, you have the oddness of this weeping caught in the midst of this story. And I want to remind us that they're both truthful. Jesus is living truthfully here as a human. As someone who is hoping, who is confident in God's goodness, and who is profoundly moved by the reality that life is not as it should be. Uh, They remove the stone. Jesus looks up, thanks the Father for hearing him. I know you always hear me. He sounds, you know, I mean, there he is, very confident, right? Um, I say this been a benefit of the crowd. Having uh, said this, he shouted in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The dead man came out, his feet bound, his hands tied, and his face covered with a cloth. Jesus said to him, untie him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came with Mary and saw what Jesus did believed in him, but some went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. What's the next part of this story? Does anyone know? So some of them tell the Pharisees, and they go to the Pharisees. Do you know what this next text is? We don't have it up here. So do you know what it is? That's right. Uh, it is moving toward the crucifixion. This, the next scene is with Caiaphas, the high priest, um, and all of Jerusalem, who decide that it is very dangerous, you see, because Rome, if Rome gets a whiff that Jesus is out here doing these kinds of things, raising the dead, we are in doo-doo. Rome will be upset. So Caiaphas makes this prophetic proclamation Better that one man die for the sake of the nation, right, than for all of us to go under. And the last line of that section is, so they decide they will kill him. In the Gospel of John, this story, this sign, is the sign that seals Jesus' death warrant. 
In the other Gospels, it's his overturning of the temple, which happens at the very beginning of John's Gospel. But in John's Gospel, it is the raising of Lazarus that is the final linchpin that says, we have got to get this guy. So what I want to suggest are a couple things that um, the principalities and powers that be, the powers of death and violence, do not want us to hope and do not want us to witness and do not want us to live in a world in which we believe in resurrection. Seemingly, of course, this would be a most beautiful story. Wouldn't everyone be excited? Wouldn't everyone be glad that the dead are raised? Isn't this like unbelievably awesome news? And this is the thing that the religious leaders, aha, the irony. The religious leaders say, no, we have to watch out for the people. Too dangerous to let such hope on the loose. So we will kill him. So this is one of the ways that this sign also points right to what's going to happen to Jesus himself. Who, of course, we know in John, even the crucifixion, even the shaming on a cross of God himself in Christ won't win, right? But it's going to look pretty ugly. So I want to just share with you some of how this text um, has been meaningful to me. Um, I, I want to... Uh, so Thomas Lynch, who's an undertaker and poet, has this great line. And he says, Grief is the tax we pay for our attachments. Grief is the tax we pay on our attachments. There are all kinds of attachments that we have. That is, we love. We give our lives to people, to righteousness, to just causes, to children who have been left behind, left out, harmed. We give our bodies, our families, our hopes, like Abby was talking about, right? We say, we will attach. You know, right, it's great psychological language, right? You could go off on this for a long time the danger of, of attaching, right? Why do it? In a world of death and violence, why attach? And especially, why attach to the vulnerable? Why attach to immigrants who aren't documented or whose documentation's run out? Why attach to the poor? Why attach to the mentally ill? Why attach to people in our family who don't seem to produce or be very helpful to know? Why attach to a church where people are just going to disappoint you? Why attach to a husband or significant other who, no offense, might not turn out to be all that was promised in the romantic myth? We do this as Christians. What I want to propose to you is that what Mountainside needs to do is enact hope like Jesus to live out these attachments, to live out our determination that we will nonetheless not only attach, but we will be honest about the cost of that attachment. We will mourn and we will grieve. But we don't do it as people without hope. 
We do it as people knowing that God will raise the dead, that God will bring justice. So I hope, uh, like me, you'll find great hope in a Christ who manages to hold and live in and stand in that place of honesty. It is not honest to live without hope. This is my great uh, challenge. I can grieve, but I find it easy to grieve without hope. That is not Christian hope. I get pretty in touch with the darkness. Maybe some of you do too. It is not Christian hope to embrace darkness for its own sake. I have to embrace that darkness also looking forward to say I am not without hope. I am not without a God who sees and not only sees but has the power to raise the dead. So may all of us figure out or be welcomed into this story wherever you are. Maybe that's about social things that you are really struggling to know if God gives a rip and if God is going to raise the dead. Bring justice, bring peace. Maybe it's a personal place of hopelessness or grief or mourning because life didn't turn out as you had hoped. God has not given you a spouse or the spouse that they, you got or the significant others or the children or the job, endless, right? isn't what you wanted. I don't know what that is for each of you. But whatever mountainside as individuals and as a church is called to, it must hold on to this space and we must model for the world that we can afford to grieve, not because we think that things are so bad, but we can afford to grieve and give ourselves compassionately to our neighbors in their despair, in their hopelessness, because we believe in a God who will bring the future. And that future is a good one. So uh, as the little people come back in, littler, younger people come back in, um, Josh is going to give an invitation to the table. You want me to do it? Okay. Are we still waiting for kids? One group? We're good? So uh, at Mountainside, we talk about everything in our service coming to this table, depending on this table. In some sense, right, this is Mountainside's liturgy of both mourning and hope wrapped up into one. Jesus takes this bread not on a happy day, but on a day when he's offering his life and giving his life for our life. So as Jesus breaks this bread, he says, this is my body broken for you. Take and eat. In the same way, he took the cup. This is the cup of my blood, shed for the new covenant. And when you drink it, as you eat and as you drink, you proclaim not only my death, 
but my determination to come again and make the world right.